our thing is making work more fun, but there's a couple of ways to go about it. So some companies really address the serious topics, like how can we distribute decision-making? How we, can we create more meaning, give people more autonomy? And then there's a set of companies that when they think about making work more fun, they think that throwing in uh, beanbags, a foosball table and free beers is going to do the job for them. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Pim Damori from Corporate Rebels. Now, many of us have sat in a pub with a friend and a pint of beer and a beer mat and bemoaned our lives and bemoaned our workplaces and maybe even scratched out a plan on the back of a beer mat about what to do next. What Pim did differently was he actually resigned from work and decided to execute his beer mat plan. It wasn't really a business plan. It was just a plan. His, His view was that work wasn't as inspiring as he had thought it would be after leaving university. So what he was going to do is travel the world and visit 70 inspiring workplaces to see how work could be more fun. He and his partner just have now done 150 inspiring workplaces. They've written a book and they have a regular podcast and blog, which is excellent. And today we chat about some of the trends that they have found from visiting progressive workplaces all over the world. The place of values instead of profit, the place of network teams instead of hierarchical pyramids and the search for talent and mastery over job descriptions. So we chat about all of that. Uh, We even get some insight from Pim on some businesses that he was disappointed to visit. So a great conversation. I had great fun. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So my name is uh, Pim de Moret, and I'm one of the co-founders of Corporate Rebels. And Corporate Rebels, our aim is to make work more fun, to make sure that uh, not a lot of people go to work feeling dreadful and hating the 40 hours a week they spend at work and turning it into actually something they and their colleagues uh, enjoy. Fantastic. And when did you start this amazing thing that you do? Uh, January 2016 was the the official uh, launch date. And what were you doing before that? Um, In a very shitty job. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I studied industrial engineering at a technical university here uh, here in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And after graduating, I started to work for a company and that perfectly fit with what I had studied for. So I was in an engineering role, um, doing that for about three, four years. And I really liked the work itself, but the whole organization and how the work was organized was really frustrating, frustrating to me. So the fact that you have a boss who's telling you what to do was kind of hard for me to accept, but also the fact that there were a lot of rules and procedures that dictated exactly how you should be doing certain things. 
Um, so there wasn't any freedom, wasn't any entrepreneurship. So after three years, I, uh, I said, this is not my uh, place to be. And I think work can be organized much better. So together with Joost, a good friend of mine, uh, for a very long time already, who had the same frustration in a totally different job. Uh, then we set out in, in 2016 to look for good examples of organizations that are actually able to engage their people. Did you come up with this plan on a beer mat down the pub? Yeah. Did you read the book? Or <laughs> <it>? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I did. I did. I did read the book, and I can't remember that that's what it said in the book. But I just thought yeah, 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 this yeah, has this the way you were telling the story. I just thought, like every uh, like every great new business venture, this sounded like it was written on the back of a beer mat after several pints of after several pints of beer. It sounded like a good idea. Most people then just go back to work, but you obviously decided to turn corporate rebels into a thing. What was um what was your what was the original thinking? What what was the plan? Well, the plan was actually no plan. And I, I I agree with you. A lot of ideas or they a lot of people say their ideas start on beer mats. So it's almost like it's this uh, story that we just copy pasted, but it was actually like this. So we were in Barcelona where Joost was working at the time. And we were having a beer um and, and talking about our frustration at work. And then after you know, sharing a bit of that, like having this really depressing conversation, sharing your frustrations. And after a bit of doing that, we were like, okay, what? Well, isn't there anything we can do about it? And then the the idea became um, during that beer drinking session, we were like, okay, but we know already there are companies out there doing things differently because we had been reading books already before uh, that moment in time. So we knew that there were companies working without managers or companies where people just had the freedom to set their own working hours or even set their own salaries. And we were like, this is so far from where we are currently in our jobs. Why don't we just uh, visit those places to see if it's, first of all, if it's real or is it just these fairy tale stories that people love to put in books? And if it's real, then to learn how do they actually do it? Because probably a lot more people can benefit from that knowledge. So that's how it started. And then I came back from that visit to Barcelona, back to my hometown. Um, on Monday morning, went into my uh, my job, still not with the idea to quit, but it was so frustrating after having spent a bit of time with Joost to think about what could be. And I came back to this workplace and I was really like, okay, I, I cannot do this anymore. So I walked into my manager's office um, and very spontaneously just said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. Uh, we have this great idea of corporate rebels, which is, like we're going to visit all kinds of pioneers around the world, learn how they work differently. And we're going to share that on a blog and I'm going to quit working here. So he said, okay, sounds like a interesting idea. And he asked a couple of questions. So one of the first ones obviously was, how are you going to make money? And the second one was, but if you're going to uh, run a blog, do you have any writing experience that you can use for that? So question to both was like the first one, do, do we know how we're going to make money? was no, we have no clue. Uh, we'll hopefully figure it out along the way, but that's not the reason we're going to do it. First, we want to learn what these companies actually are doing different, and then hopefully a business model will follow along the way. Um, and the second one, yeah, I, we had no writing experience whatsoever. So we just thought, let's start somewhere. And I also won't, don't advise you to go to the first blog post we wrote. They're still on the internet, <laughs> but it's terrible. <laughs> you don't want to read it. So yeah, we just started. And over time, things grew very quickly. Like after just a couple of months of writing these stories and sharing our experiences of visits to these workplaces, a lot of people picked up those stories and they wanted to learn also how these workplaces work and what they are doing differently. 
and I, I suppose because you don't have a business model, you've got no axe to grind. And so, you know, you did say from the outset, you know, is this just, are these just fairy tales that, you know, other people write in business books to prove, to prove their thesis is true. From your perspective, it was as an employee in a business, what would it be like to be an employee in this business? Yeah. And I think that's also what really helped in the beginning. The fact that we'd had no business model was beneficial, at least in two ways. Like, first of all, the people we want we wanted to talk to and the organizations we wanted to learn from are much more open to sharing if there's no money-making idea behind it. Uh, because they thought they knew we were doing it because we just wanted an answer and some answers. Um, so that was already helpful to get meetings with those people. Um, and secondly, like it didn't force us into this, okay, we have to make money out of this. How can we do that? What are people looking for? Because then it all becomes this whole salesy endeavor that. I think comes across in many cases very inauthentic. And, and I, th I think it's one of the nice things of being a bit opportunistic and also a bit naive of just doing it and hoping that uh, it will turn out well. Okay. And you put together a bucket list and then decided that these were the people you wanted to go and visit. Yeah. So instead of a bucket list, meaning like these are the things that I want to do before I die, for us it was these are the people and the organizations we want to study. Uh, to understand how to make work more fun. So we put them on a website, just putting it out in the open and saying, okay, we think we can learn from these people and these organizations and let's just visit them, try to get meetings with those people and the employees working in those companies and then studying what they do. So that's how it started. And in the beginning, of course, it was quite hard to talk to some people or to uh, get meetings at certain organizations. Um, so it was a lot of stalking involved and spamming <laughs> in the beginning. And over time, it just uh, resulted in more great stories. And when companies started to understand what we were doing, they were becoming more open to uh, to inviting us over. And which has, been, uh, which has been the hardest company on the bucket list? Have you managed to get to visit everyone on the list? No. Um, so nowadays, we have about 170 pioneers on the list. We visited more than 120, I guess, at the moment. But we are not that easy on ourselves because we constantly add new pioneers if we come across any interesting ones. So now, even after a couple of years, it's really hard to find these progressive organizations. But if we do come across them, we add them to the list and then try to research them at a later point in time. And is there anyone on your original list you still haven't managed to get to see? Uh, yeah, um, there are some people and I think, uh, yeah, for example, the, um, the former HR person from Netflix, Richard Branson is also still on that, uh, on that list. So there's a few people we haven't even tried. Paddy McCord. Yeah. Paddy McCord. Yeah. I had her yeah. on the, we had her on, I had her on the podcast a little while ago. Ah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And Richard Branson's on your list. Okay. Yeah. And, and some people that are still, um, some, we just haven't approached yet and others, uh, have been ignoring us. <laughs> that, that happens too, I can tell you. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? A favorite story or a favorite a favorite company that you visited? Um, no, not really. Depends a bit on what point in time you uh, ask me. But I'm always a big fan of uh, the companies that are not that well known for, for doing things different, but that are most of the time more progressive than the usual suspects. Like we tend to look a lot at Spotify or or Google or the Netflixes. And a lot of people love to hear what they are doing, but I think there's m 
much more interesting examples in places that we've never heard of. Like, for example, one of my personal favorites is the Belgium uh, Ministry of Social Security. And you wouldn't expect that to happen over there, right? It's a, a government organization where civil servants determine their own working hours. So they decide when they work, where they work, even how many hours a week they work. Um, they work with uh, self-management. So a lot of the hierarchy levels have gone away. So it's super progressive, especially for a government organization. So, And you can't believe he didn't get stopped or thrown out, you know, because you would think that the antibodies, particularly in government, were would be so strong that the status quo would be almost set in concrete. Yeah, and that's the beauty of this story. So the guy who supported the transformation as the leader of that department, he did so for three years under the radar. So they started doing this without telling anybody outside of the organization because they knew if they were sharing this, they would definitely be shut down and he would be kicked out into another position. So they they really did it in a, like they kept it under the radar until until they had success and only then they opened up and said, "Well, this is what we've achieved, so we can't really go back to the old situation." Yeah, very good. <clears throat> and you've got some you've got some local businesses like uh Bertzorg. No no man no managers. I mean, they I I guess they might be a bit more famous, but still probably most people won't have heard of them. Yeah. It's still one of the most pioneering organizations that we've come across. They have employed 15,000 people, um, home care nurses, and they are distributed into more than 1,000 self-managing teams. So it is not in a 15,000 employee organization, there's not a single manager. And this sounds unbelievable to so many people. Um, and they have just 50 people in their headquarters. That percentage of uh, overhead is just extremely low. Well, and I, I think the because I think there was a thing I read the other day, which managers' salaries make up thirty percent of the typically make up thirty percent of the headcount budget. If you could have the same revenue and the same outcome, and you could save thirty percent of your salary bill, I mean, it's not it's not thirty percent of revenue, but in many cases, it it's fifty percent. You know, so there's somewhere between five. Five and twenty percent extra profit that you could float to the bottom line if you could run your business without managers. Yeah, and that's interesting, right? And it, that's just a, the most measurable thing. Like, for example, if you look at uh, Birzorg, there indeed their overhead costs are are way lower than traditional counterparts. So they have their overhead costs are sixty seven percent lower. But that's just one part of the equation. That's the sim the thing that's simple to measure. But if you look at the higher levels of engagement, the higher client satisfaction, the fact that they cure patients faster than their competitors, all of that combined makes it such a powerful and extraordinary case that they are showing literally what more organizations around the world should be doing. Not by copying it, but at least looking at the principles behind it and figuring out how they can can leverage them and bring those into their organizations. Well, and that's a large organization. So would working in self-managed teams work for everybody in the workforce? Or do you have to be a certain type of person, do you think? No, first of all, I don't don't believe in a silver bullet. So I don't think there's one solution that will cure all of the corporate diseases that are out there. It might work very well in specific organizations or types of organizations. But we've also seen that some people just want a boss who tells them what to do and how to do their job. They are not looking for such high amounts of freedom and higher amounts of responsibility. It's a small percentage, but there are people who, who want that in, in the workplace. So why force them into self-managing teams if they're not looking for that? So um, I think there's it's a, 
at least the principles behind it, like giving people more freedom and giving people more responsibility um, and letting them figure out stuff on their own. I think those ideas should be translated into many more organizations because it's missing in, in many corporate organizations, right? Where you're just being told what to do and you just listen to your manager or look at the rule book on um, what it says, how you should be doing your job. So yeah, I think the principles behind it are something that is definitely something that more organizations should adopt. Um, you, I guess you've ended up coming, if you ended up with a, a playbook or a playlist that these organizations, you, you know, you've created it now, you've been to see your bucket list, your bucket list, you've come up with a, the common themes. Yeah. So we, in, in, in our writing and also in our book, we talk about the eight trends that we see. So it's not a model. It's not a ticking the box exercise of what companies should be doing but it's a list of what these companies are doing different than the traditional ones. Um, and it's for everyone to see and to be inspired by and then think about, okay, what are some of those lessons that could be translated to my situation or my organization? So yeah, there's eight themes that we we mostly talk about, like just to name a few, when we're going through all of them, because then probably your listeners will fall asleep, but just to give you give you some examples like a, a move from hierarchical pyramid structures with the CEO on top and then all the management layers in between towards this network of team structure. For example, the, the example of Buurtzorg is a great example of that. Or the move from secrecy to radical transparency, like opening up all kinds of information in a company from salary levels to performance reviews to company financials to give people a better understanding of what's going on. Who's the best example of, of transparency that you visited? Particularly about salaries, because that that terrifies people. Yeah, in the UK, you have a beautiful example: a company called Smarkets. They're an online betting exchange, and they're about 150 people at the moment, uh, growing quite quickly. And they've opened up their salary levels a couple couple of years ago, because they wanted to get rid of this common thing that's happening in organizations around salaries: the the, the yearly gossiping, like people go into into their uh, yearly a review meeting and then their managers evaluate their performance and based on their performance they get a certain percentage uh, salary increase and they said well with this practice like everybody in the organization started to gossip about who was getting which uh, pay rise so they th- they said we have to do things differently and they looked at some other progressive organizations they said why don't we just open it up so we get rid of the entire gossiping and the guessing work of what other people are are earning. So they did so, and uh, they uh, opened up the salary levels, which in the beginning, like before they did that, they made sure they were fair, which in many companies is also a bit of a challenge. And then making sure they are fair, or at least as fair as they, they can be, then opening them up. And they opened them up, and in the beginning, everybody was looking at the the salary of their colleagues. But after the initial like hype, or buzz around it, people stopped doing that and they just now mo- moved even further where, and now their employees actually set their own salaries. And whatever they set is completely out in the open for everyone else to see. So they're quite transparent and also in their communications and all they're there, all the company financials, everything is completely open to everyone, whether you're the chef in the company or whether you're in IT development or communications uh, director, that doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think I think it's that... The, the terror is around uh, perceived value and perceived fairness. 
some of the people who are making decisions around whether salary should be transparent aren't sure that they can justify the value, their own value. And they think that they will, it, it will, you know, people will see the lack of fairness in the, in this existing salary structure. Yeah. That's, I think the main, the main reason companies are scared to, to open it up. And because for example, one person is a great negotiator comes in at a very high level. Um, while somebody might've worked already for the company for 10 years, has always been scared to ask for a pay rise. Um, but maybe they contribute the exact same value. So the interesting thing is that in traditional organizations, you never really talk about it. People don't know it or they just accept it. But if you open them up and if people can see that they're unfair, then yes, a difficult conversation arises, but it's good to have those conversations because then you're talking about the stuff that really matters. Yes, well, uh, indeed, whether whatever, whatever you, unless you have trust and transparency, then the whole thing is a house of cards. You also talk about uh, job descriptions, getting rid of job descriptions. That's another sort of big company bullshit thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Like the idea is that you, first of all, you're hired for a certain position with clear like uh, role descriptions or clear, like it almost um, writes down your exact day-to-day -day activities. But things change so quickly nowadays that you are hired for this one position and after a week or a month or a year, your job changes so much or your job should change so much, but you still look at what are all the activities that are still in your in your job description. So um, especially in fast changing environments, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do it. And what makes it even worse, like we did a big research study in the Netherlands on the presence of these eight trends. Um, and we figured out that especially this trend, like the move from job descriptions to focus on talents and mastery. So how can you actually do the things you're good at and the stuff you like to do? People said that like one third of the people that we uh, surveyed said that they are able to use their main talents in their day-to-day -day work. So 67% of the people don't. So they have so many talents that they are using maybe in at home or in whatever they are doing besides work, but they're not bringing them into the workplace, which is not just a waste of uh, potential, but also a waste of motivation because people don't get to do the things they like to do the most. So this is a, I think a change that like job descriptions get in the way of that. If your job description says, besides uh, being a salesperson, you also need to take care of, for example, administrative tasks or this or that. If you're not good at it, if you don't like to do it, but still have to spend a part of your week doing it, it does make a whole lot of sense, not for the company and not for the individual. So that's why many of these organizations focus much more on crafting jobs around the talents of people. So figuring out what people love to do most and what are they are best at, and then finding a job for them or combining roles into a certain job that perfectly fits those talents. In terms of measuring performance for those in that, in that new crafted job, you know, if I take the, I don't know, the typical corporate thing, it would be an annual appraisal. What's the, what's the new world version of annual appraisal? What replaces something like that? Well, I think there's a lot of talk already about this. Mainly it's moving towards um, more regular feedback sessions, um, like having a regular conversation with not just your manager, preferably actually with the people you directly work with because they're much better capable of uh, assessing your performance. Like, first of all, the idea that your manager is the best person to tell you how you've done your job doesn't make any sense. 
like you set goals for the year. I remember this from my previous job. You set your goals in your personal development plan. Um, and then you're very ambitious and, or maybe as me, way too opportunistic. You think a lot of things will happen in the year after. Um, and then you actually get into that year's work. And at the end of the year, you you once again think about those goals you set. Thinking about, ah, shit, I put those in my personal development plan. Let's look if I actually have worked on those uh, goals. And then you figure out that you have to uh, be very creative to tick off all those things. And even if you had a super successful year, developing yourself a lot on, on specific topics, if you haven't crossed, like if you haven't ticked all of these goals off your uh, goal list, then according to your manager, apparently you're not successful. So this doesn't make all, a lot of sense. So um, replacing that with continuous feedback, preferably with the people you work with directly, um, and just making sure that you can open up performance one way or another, um, that's way more powerful than this yearly uh, ritual of sitting down with your manager. Was there a company that was disappointing? And I don't mean that they weren't what they were cracked up to be, but was there something that you went somewhere expecting to see something or hear something and it, and it just turned out that that thing wasn't real? Yeah. You might not want to name, you might not want to name them, but maybe you oh, can no, talk that's about where we, That's where you're radically transparent. As well. <laughs> like, uh, no, one, the most famous example of a disappointing uh, visit was uh, uh, the, our visit to Google. So we went to visit them here in Holland, but also went to their uh, headquarters in uh, Silicon Valley. We talked to some people there. And uh, first of all, we weren't officially invited to get in. So we just connected with some people uh, through uh, mutual contacts. And then we got a, got ourselves some meetings over there. We talked to some people, got a, a tour of their uh, campus. But the most painful thing that we saw was the fact that while interviewing these people, they were really scared to be transparent about how they experienced their uh, work at Google. So while Google is very fond of being, like they're all about transparency, they say, they, um, and they're about making all the information in the world available to everyone. And But when we talked to those people inside the company, they were scared to open up. So we at the end of, the in, uh, at the end of one of the interviews, we asked uh, that person, like, is it okay if we write a blog post, send it to you for uh, fact-checking? So maybe we misunderstood something, you can correct us. And then he said, well, please don't send it to me because then they probably are able to trace back to me whatever I said to you guys. So this says something about the culture at a company, right? Um, and especially because Google was supposed to be this pioneering organization, really fond of putting people first. But apparently the, over time during their rapid growth, that got lost somewhere along the way. Uh-huh. It doesn't sound like a large amount of psychological safety. No. Well, they love to talk about it, <laughs> that it's one of the most important things that their successful teams do. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And is there another, have you got an, another example of uh, another company where you thought, because that's fascinating, another one where you thought wasn't quite what you expected? Yeah, we, the problem that we also run into here and there is that um, some companies love to focus on uh, fun at work, like our, our, our thing is making work more fun, but there's a couple of ways to go about it. So um, some companies really address the serious topics, like how can we uh, distribute decision-making? How we, can we create more meaning, give people more autonomy? And then there's a set of companies that when they think about making work more fun, 
They think that throwing in uh, beanbags, a foosball table and free beers is going to do the job for them. So sometimes we go into companies and they have all these superficial fixes, but it's not the real thing that the real important things that are changing. So yeah, this happens also that companies love to talk about this engaging and progressive work environment. But then when you get there, it's all about superficial fixes. And when you look at their their hierarchies, the fact that there's no autonomy, no freedom, then you see that it's not really uh, what they claim claim it to be. Do the companies you've studied have you got a measurement of engagement or fun? I mean, do you see that? Do you see engagement and fun as the same thing? Is does fun drive engagement, or is no? And 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 it's also not that we don't talk about it that strict. So uh, fun is definitely the wrong word for what we're talking about, but it's kind of catchy. Um, so if we talk about making work more fun for us, it's much more than that. So it's about meaning. It's about autonomy. It's about like all the things that uh, researchers like Dan Pink, for example, talk about. It's about creating motivation at work. So we're much more about those those topics. Um, and it's not really a way to uh, to properly measure that. So we also don't really go about it that way. We just look at, okay, what are these what are these companies where people love to seem to love to work? What are they doing different? and and why is that actually uh, satisfying people? And does that satisfaction then transform into better performance for the business? That's unfortunately too too hard to say like that. Like in, in, in social science and especially in a, on a topic like this, it's really hard to point to a causal relationship. But there's a lot of studies showing a correlation between engagement and business outcomes. So productivity or profit or less accidents or less absenteeism. So there's a strong correlation between the two. But it's too hard to say or it's not really possible to measure whether there's a causal relationship as well between the two. I'm, I'm very much a believer in that. Just look at your private life, for example, if you love to do something, then probably the outcomes will be better as well because you put in more effort, you take more time to do it, to turn it into a success. And if you don't like to do something, you procrastinate or you just do it very quickly because you don't like to spend a lot of time doing it. So yeah, I think there's definitely a causal relationship there, but it's never really been proven that it that there is one. Okay. And um, what do you think about when you think about as we come out of sort of COVID-19 lockdown, are there any other, you know, there's been a lot of people talking about offices, not offices, hybrid. And then I find it fascinating. I was reading a thing this morning, 86% of people said they, they, they don't believe their productivity has suffered whilst they've worked remotely. However, however, given Given that for me, an A player is the top 10%, what it doesn't say is it potentially that, you know, all of the best people could have said their productivity has been impacted and it's only the people who are average or below average who are saying it hasn't. What, what do you think, is, is there anything you can draw from the businesses you visited around remote work or office-based office based environments that you, that you think are? Yeah, main lesson which is now often overlooked in the discussion about uh, remote work or hybrid or office work is let people figure it out themselves. Like if there's one thing we learned, for example, the Belgian ministry again, where people just are allowed to work whenever they want, wherever they want, just leave it up to the people themselves. Like they're responsible adults. Why would we need to tell anybody to work one or two or three or four or five days a week from home or from the office. 
what it comes down to is giving trusting people that they are able to make the right decisions themselves also when it comes to where they work. Um, and what we see in most organizations is that people will uh, find a hybrid version. Um, some people, for example, if you look at the Belgian ministry, on average, 10% of the people are in the office every day. Yeah. And the who are in the office changes. Some people are always there. They don't like to work at home. They don't like to work in other places. So they always come to the office. There's people that come in once every two weeks just for team meetings or updates or whatever it is that they want to do at work. And there's a the big majority that comes in once every week, maybe twice every week for a short period of time maybe. Um, and they do some more creative sessions or they um, meet with colleagues to catch up and to to have also more relaxed social conversations. And and there's a lot in between those those options. So I truly believe that it should be the employee's decision to work from home or to work at the office or to work wherever they want and not so much a company decision. And I think if there's one thing we should have learned from before the pandemic is that it doesn't make sense to tell everybody to come to the office because nowadays we see that's not needed. We also shouldn't start telling people that they should come into the office one, two or three days a week. And we should just leave the decision up to them. And up to the individuals or up to the teams? Um, I think if you put responsibility at the right level, so at the team level, um, for most work, doesn't mean that it should work like that for every type of work. But for most work, if you put responsibility at the team level, um, then it makes more sense to leave the individuals to decide. But if it doesn't work, then the other teammates will hold them accountable to it. So I think it should be an individual decision. And then it's up to the individual and the team themselves to figure out, is this working for us or should we maybe change something? And this should be the conversation they're having. And the conversation should not be, what does HR tell us to do? And what happens to the design of office space? Does that change? Yeah, mostly we've seen it change. So where, well, first of all, get rid of the cubicles, even if you still work in the office. <laughs> it's terrible. Also get rid of your open office plans. People hate it. It kills productivity and... Just let people once again design their own workplace based on their activities. They're perfectly capable of thinking about uh, what kind of spaces they need. So, and if you give people the opportunity to do that, mostly they will come up with a combination of all sorts of usage. Like, for example, more create for more creative sessions, they have these brainstorming rooms or meeting rooms to do that. And for more quiet, focused work, they have separate places that are more quiet, where people can focus really on their own work. So it changes from this one-size-fits-all solution towards let people figure it out themselves and give, once again, individuals, teams, or departments the opportunity to design their own workplace. I've got uh, one other question, which, and so how different do you think values or are values a company thing and culture is a team thing? I was just thinking about that sort of uh, how... What central structure, if, if, if we've got no office, if there's no coming to work at a particular time, what, is the, what, what does the center produce? And so is there a company culture? Do you still have core values? Do you have behaviors? Is that a thing that is common throughout all of the teams? Or do the teams have their own cultures and their own values and their own behaviors? Um, mostly the organization itself has a very clear purpose with uh, some set of values, either explicit or implicit. Um, and that drills down also to, uh, to team level. 
But then in the teams you have, every team has a bit of a different culture. And this also happens, of course, in traditional organizations, but I think it's a bit more present in these progressive ones. For example, if you look at a company like Beardsorg, their purpose is very clear, like providing good quality, affordable healthcare. And then they have a set of implicit values in place where the, all the teams live by. But within teams, you see quite a big difference in how they operate. And there's no one central way that's being dictated. So, for example, one team might be still more hierarchical. They don't have an appointed leader or f- official manager. But all, obviously, there's always people who take the lead and others that prefer to follow. So in some teams, it might be more hierarchical than in others. But the, the, the basic understanding of finding that ideal way of working for yourself but still listening to or following the purpose of the organization and the values of the organization is an important thing. So that is still more a central theme. That's more or less what connects these organizations, like the reason why they exist and the way they want to do business. Um, mostly that's that's what combines them. And then you have all the other elements that are being distributed to, to team level. Okay. So as an employee, I might find my perfect team because the team I work in might be, it might be my ideal job. Uh, it might have the ideal culture and it might have even the, the right amount of hierarchical structure for me. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. Like, and, and this is an important element. For example, when we went to uh, Spotify, it's well known for its progressive way of working, or at least their progressive organizational structure, which by the way, only is part of their engineering department. So it's about one third of the company. And they work with these squads and tribes and guilds and sounds all very fancy, but it's just teams and connections between teams that they're talking about. But a lot of companies look at Spotify and think, oh, we want to adopt the Spotify model as well. For example, here in the Netherlands, ING Bank, and they adopted the Spotify model as well. And the interesting thing, if you go to both companies, at one, at Spotify, we talked to the HR director and uh, Katarina Berg, and she said, well, of course, this snapshot that somebody once made of how we work it says something about our values and our principles but it's not how we actually work like every team themselves <laughs> decide how they work so the, all the autonomy lies with the team itself so if they want to work according to the scrum methodology or uh, a devops methodology that's up to the teams themselves if teams don't want to do any of that they want to work more hierarchical that's up to them to decide But if you look at companies like ING that are adopting the Spotify model, they take it like it's a fixed and they force the entire organization to work in a certain way. So the most important underlying principles are just overlooked and and not implemented in the organization. But I see that so many times when when people copy and and don't understand the essence you know the number of times i've met people who said oh well we've we've implemented net promoter score nps and it didn't work for us and then when you scratch a little bit you realize that they sort of copied somebody's copy of somebody else's copy (laughs) but they know they didn't really ever understand like why it would work or what would be difficult and then did it badly and it failed so the fact that you've got ing doing the same with with spotify and just sort of fundamentally getting it all wrong, I think is uh, is a good example of that as well. That copying that you talk about, it's a little bit, I don't know if you have that in the, in the UK too, that game that you play in kindergarten where one person tells something to the person sitting next to him and then everybody just tries to repeat it to the person sitting next to him and at the end of the line, you have a completely different story. <laughs> that's, that's a bit <laughs> like this, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Pim, if there's some, is there something you know now which you wish you'd known earlier? Yeah, I wish I had known some of this, a, a bit more about this topic when I was still in my previous job. Because what we did, like we worked for, for three years in those companies and we escaped. Why? Because we wanted a better workplace, but we had no clue what it actually meant. So we knew we were dissatisfied, but not really, we didn't know about an alternative. And we also didn't know about any change strategies, like what could we do in our teams, in our departments, in our companies to get people together and to start changing or transforming an organization. And I really wish I, we would have known a bit more, more about that. So we could have actually also changed it more from the inside out. I mean, you started your own business, so you're entrepreneurial and often entrepreneurs make awful employees. Do you think you could have ever been a happy employee somewhere else? Yeah, if you have the right environment. Like, and this is, uh, this is an interesting one, what you're saying. Like, ideally, entrepreneurs should also perfectly fit within corporate structures because then you can combine more entrepreneurial people and less entrepreneurial people and you get a great diversity of both. So that's, I think, one of the symptoms of what we're doing wrong. But yeah, I wouldn't have gone back. I wouldn't have loved to gone back to that organization um, instead of having my own company. But I would have loved to at least change a couple of things before I escaped. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you didn't know that because otherwise we wouldn't have all got to uh, follow you guys vicariously around the world. I love reading your blog posts, and I thought the book "Corporate Rebels Make Work More Fun" was excellent. What other books do you think people? who are interested in this topic should pick up and read? What's, what's influenced you? Well, first of all, I'm not a big fan of management, management books, like especially not management theory. I prefer to read the actual case studies of companies and how they've transformed. So if you really want to be inspired by um, what companies around the world are doing to change and to, to, to kind of beat the status quo, I think you should definitely read Maverick by Ricardo Sembler. It's an all-time classic. You should... Everybody has to read it. Everybody working in business <laughs> has to read it. And I think there's there's a couple of those stories out there. Um, for example, the the book by uh, Patty McCord on Netflix and what they have been doing, um, but also a book by former CEO Jean-Francois Sobrist, who has been transforming a French company called Favi. It's also wrote a, written about in uh, in Frederic Laloux's book, Reinventing Organizations. And I'm not sure what the name of the book is. It's in French and it's been really poorly translated into English, but still is one of the best books out there, I guess. It's about something, the history, La Belle Histoire de Favi, something like that, like the, the great story of uh, the beautiful story of Favi. Um, what other nice case studies? I love the book by, uh, um, it's called Turn the Ship Around by uh, uh, David Marquet, um, former uh, um U.S. Navy uh, commander and how he transformed the culture on his, uh, on his uh, nuclear-powered ship, submarine. It was a really, really cool story as well. Well, you feel really sorry for him, don't you? Because he's, you know, he spent a year learning everything there is to know about this ship he's going to command. And then you know, just before he's about to take command, they give him this one, which is shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he doesn't know anything about it at all. And I just think it's, you know, I, I feel really, I feel, I felt, Right at the beginning of the book, I felt really sorry for him that he'd put, he'd, he, you know, he'd put in so much time and effort to learn everything about this submarine that he never gets to command. Oh, brilliant. That's, that's loads. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, Pim, it's been an absolute pleasure 
to uh, speak to you today. Where, when lockdown ends uh, or, or travel commences, where are you? Where are you off to next? Do you have anything in the diary for the rest of the year? Yeah, the plan is to take a couple of people that we know quite well, um, some avid readers of our uh, blog, take them to China, um, hope, hopefully in November, to visit one of the most pioneering companies we've come across, a company called Hire. Um, it's a large, it's l- the largest white goods manufacturer in the world. And they are doing some super radical things. Like uh, they broke up the big company that employs 70,000 people into more than 4,000 small companies where people select their own leaders and can take a, a stake in those smaller companies. So they really create this entrepreneurial uh, um, group of companies. And we're going to bring a lot of our uh, readers and interested clients to to that uh, to Qingdao in China to visit them and to see it with their own eyes. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to vicariously visiting China with you and uh, read about that trip. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>